0: Amen. If you have your Bible, let's turn today to Romans chapter 8, we're still going through the book of Romans a verse at a time, Some, today a few verses at a time, how about that? And uh, if you don't have a Bible, then please get one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew, it's on page 944 in that Bible, and you're welcome to keep that Bible for yourself if you don't have a physical Bible that you can take home, uh, it's our gift to you. Let's read, and we're going to start with verse 18, even though the, uh, the sermon begins with verse 19. Just a reminder that Romans 8 g- goes from the place of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus at the beginning of the chapter to no separation from the love of God in Christ at the end of the chapter. That we cannot be separated from God by sin any longer for us who are in Christ and that there is no amount of suffering that could possibly separate us from the love of God in Christ. So we've come to the point of transition in this chapter where, uh, where we are now dealing with the question of Christian suffering. And what does that look like? Why would that happen? Does that mean we've been forsaken by God? The answer is no, we haven't. But today we're going to look in particular at what it would say about suffering in light of the broken world that we live in. So we'll start at Romans 8:18. 8, it says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And our text for today for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So this is talking about creation. It's talking specifically about our suffering when it comes in relation to the world around us. And the pain and the suffering that the world around us brings in its current cursed state but knowing that God is going to do something about that current cursed state of the creation. And it makes me makes me wonder, what, what is the most beautiful thing that you've ever seen in creation? There's a lot of beautiful things in creation. May, maybe you think of something like the view from the top of a really high mountain that you got to go up one time. Or maybe you would think of a meteor shower as you just lie down in the grass at night and just look up and see those things flying by. Maybe it's a sunset, or maybe lots of sunsets that you've seen, where each one you think might be the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Or a rainbow, just that, that beautiful picture of a huge rainbow all the way across the sky that God put there all the way back in Genesis after the flood as a sign that he's never again going to destroy the earth with water. It's beautiful. Maybe you got to go on vacation somewhere tropical and you got, got that view of, of those big tropical mountains that, that drop down to white sands with the, the perfect blue water lapping up against them and going all the way out to the horizon. There's just so many beautiful things in creation. I'm sure you could list more that you've seen before. What the Bible tells us is that every single one of those things is declaring the glory of God. It's announcing to the world... Whether you're a Christian and you recognize it, or you're not and you don't recognize it, it's announcing there is a God who has made all of this. And all of this is for his glory. And everybody ought to see that this is all about God. And yet at the same time, there's a problem when you look around at creation. Because every beautiful thing that there is, well, maybe... There's a cloud that's going to come in front of that sunset, and it's, you're not going to be able to see it anymore. Maybe underneath that rainbow, even though it's so beautiful, maybe it is hovering over a volcano that's threatening a town. Maybe there is an animal that, in the middle of the beautiful African plain that you've gone out on vacation to see, suddenly you're seeing something you wish you weren't seeing, with one animal animal ripping another animal into pieces. There's all kinds of stuff. There are earthquakes. There's hurricanes. There are bodies that get racked with disease and fade and die. And we would think of that and say, how could these be part of the same creation? How could these both, both the beautiful things and the horrible things, how could they both be in the same creation, made by the same God. And some people look at that. In fact, I would say probably all people who at least get to their adolescent years at some point have the thought, how could a good God have created this world? Even after all the beautiful things that we see, we start to think, but if God were really good and God were really powerful, then how could the world be like it is? That's not an original thought to any of us, even though it probably crosses all of our minds at some point or another. It's been a thought that's been on the minds of human beings for the entire history of humanity ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, ever since man was kicked out of the Garden, ever since the world was cursed in response to the sin of humankind. There have been things about the world that reflect poorly on the God who made it, and we wonder, how could it be like this? And it makes us to reflect a little bit on on last week. Last week, we were seeing this idea that we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be also glorified with him. We talked about the sufferings of this present time and how they're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I had a a very, very good question come to me by text message from, from a church member not long after that sermon saying, could it be, though, that maybe the Uh, The suffering that it's talking about there is is not just sort of like the general suffering that everybody goes through. Where you know we all get a pain in our hip every once in a while, we all get sick, we all have to deal with the, the the thorns and thistles of life. It's not unique to Christians; it happens for everybody. Maybe that's the kind of suffering that it's talking about. Well, when we get to this this verse, it starts to become clearer. No, that is the kind of suffering that it's talking about. Of course, there are kinds of suffering that are unique to Christians. There's the kinds of suffering where you are suffering, not just in general in the world, but suffering for righteousness' sake, right? And that's included in this. And it reminds me, there, there was a man who, who lost his job in Australia this week. He, he, had, he, he was the president of an Australian football club for one day, until in that one day it came out in the press that he was a member of an evangelical church that had on its website a sermon not from this year, not from last year, but from 2013, where at some point they had mentioned that the Bible condemns homosexuality. And because of that, and because of his affiliation with that, he was immediately fired from that job that he held for one day, which just reminds us, hey, as we stand for the truth, as as we are on the side of Christ, yes, we are all exposing ourselves to the potential for persecution, uh, of being... uh, (laughs) You know, discriminated against as discriminators, or however, uh, however the world would want to put it. That's just an example to say yes, there are particular kinds of suffering that come to Christians because of our Christian faith, because of our affiliation with Christ. But there is also suffering that we need to know that we go through, that is normal to the world. That God is not going to put a bubble around us as Christians and withhold from us. This was a hard thing to think through in the early church. Uh, in, in these these earliest days of Christianity, I mean Jesus had made some really, really plain statements about believing in him and having eternal life. Whoever believes in me, he will not taste death. Jesus made these statements very plainly and so and so in in, in certain uh, churches, and I think especially of the Thessalonian church, there was a question that came up of, well, how could it be then? that people in our church who trust in Jesus, that some of them have died. How could they have gone through that suffering all the way to the point of death when Jesus said, you trust in me, you will never taste death? So this is a real question. And I think even though it's not a real question in quite that same context today, it still is a real question today, is if I trust in Jesus, if I have actual faith in Jesus... Why doesn't God put a bubble around me and make me exempt from the sufferings of this present life? Wouldn't that be what a good God would do for his children who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ? And the whole second half of Romans 8 is to say, no, God is not going to do that. That's not God's plan. God is going to allow us who are Christians to continue to undergo what our Baptist catechism calls the miseries of this life. But knowing that the fact that we experience those miseries of this life, knowing that we still experience the curses that came into the world in Genesis 3, that does not mean that you're on the outs with God. That's not evidence that God has forsaken you. God does not say to you, have enough faith and your bank account will fill up and you will never have to go to the hospital again. That's a false gospel that's all over your televisions for those who still watch television. <laughs> but we, uh, what we have here instead, we have the actual truth, which is we're following after Christ. Now I'm preaching last week's sermon all over again, right? He was a man of sorrow, was acquainted with grief. He was a man familiar with suffering, and we walk in his footsteps. And it shouldn't be strange to us whether we are persecuted or whether we get cancer, which we don't want either of those things to happen to anybody But we know that we are still in the reality of a broken world, but we have our minds and our hopes set on the glory that is to be revealed to us in Christ. All that to say in relation to these verses that part of why that happens, part of what he's getting across here is that he has not yet taken away the curses on the world that we live in, but he's going to. There are curses on the creation that came in in Genesis chapter 3, And they're not gone yet, but they will be. This is here to help us who are in Christ to set our hope on the glory that is to be revealed. So let's look in verse 19. Now I'm going to start the sermon, all right? Let's look in verse 19 at the creation's eager longing. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That word for is telling you here's a reason for what came before when it said that the the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. Here's one reason. It's because right now the world is still messed up, but one day it won't be. That's the idea of what's going on in this passage. Now this creation, this, this gets us at this idea where we need to have this straight in our head. We need to have a biblical worldview. Let me tell you a biblical worldview in four words or four terms. Are you ready for it? Get these terms in your head, begin to understand them, and you will have a biblical worldview. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. That's it. That's a biblical worldview. We as Christians, we're to look at the world, we're to understand it for what it is, as God has made it, as what it is, as where it's going. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. What we have is that the creation is crying out. What is the creation? Well, it's what God has made. It's what God has made. And as God made the world, he made the world in the space of six days and all very good. That's God's work of creation. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 1. There are these six days, which as far as I can tell, was laid out there in plain text. as six literal 24-hour days where he made the world. And at the end of that time that he looked at everything that he had made, and what did he say about it? He said, it was good. It was good. There was nothing wrong with it. God didn't make a world in which things were messed up. That wasn't going to come until Genesis 3. We'll get there in just a minute. But this creation, it's something that is not God. It's distinct from God. It's what God, the uncreated creator, has made. All the things besides him. But in this passage, it's not talking about everything that God has made. It's talking specifically about the world that we're living in, this world and space around us, all of the the things that you can look and you can see. How do we know that? Well, think about all that's involved in what God has created. Obviously, God created the world that we're living in, and God created angels. Did you know that? They're not eternal beings. They're creations of God. But this passage is about things in creation being redeemed, being set free from their bondage to decay. And did you know that there is no plan of salvation for fallen angels in the Bible? There's the elect angels, two-thirds of heaven's legions, who stayed with God. And then there are the reprobate angels, a third of heaven's angels that fell, rebelled against God. Their leader's name is Satan. We call them the demons and they have turned against God, and there is no plan of salvation for them. There is no redemption for them. And this is talking about a creation for which there's a redemption. So it's not talking about those spiritual beings, the angels. Another thing that it's not talking about is humanity in this passage. It's not talking about the creation in terms of individual humans being saved. There's a lot in Romans about individual humans being saved. We need to know that. We need to be individual humans who are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. But this is talking about the creation looking at those humans, something that is other than those humans, looking to see the revealing of the sons of God. So what this is talking about in this passage is not everything that has been made, but the world that's around us, what we would normally call the creation, when we use that term in just kind of normal everyday language. As we look around at the creation, that it's, it's, it, it is crying out with the glory of God, and it's broken. It says in Romans 1:20, "God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they, meaning all the nations, are without excuse. That's what it says. When God had created everything, he, he put mankind in the middle of it, and he gave man this charge over creation. He said, you are to work it and you're to keep it. This is almost an image of being in that Garden of Eden that God has already done some gardening in and saying, you're going to be the gardener now. You're going to work it and you're going to keep it, and not just to work it and keep it, but also to expand the borders of that Garden of Eden. He said, you are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. I just It's so fascinating to me to think through, what would the world look like today if Adam hadn't sinned? If humanity had remained in that righteous state, if they had eaten from the tree of life instead of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they had been fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth and subdued it in the way that God was talking about, what would the world even look like right now? It's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine, but God had given them this stewardship. He he had made the world almost like a big temple for his glory, with mankind in it as You know, the statue in the temple, the the image of himself, to be there, to be the caretaker, to be his vice regents in the world, exercising power over the world. But boy, boy, things got messed up. (coughs) Excuse me. Things got messed up. Oh, here's a side note. People ask this question all the time. This is probably a good time to address it. Sometimes people will ask me as a pastor, is my dog going to be in heaven? No, I, I get why some people laugh at that question, but some people are really, really not laughing at that question, because we, we can really get bonded to, to certain animals and, and things in creation that we can see. God's good design is there, and, and boy, that, that, that animal was a companion and a comfort to me in certain ways. Well, I will say this. It looks like in the new creation that there will be animals. It says in Isaiah sixty-five twenty-five, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, the dust shall be the serpent's food, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now the question, will your pet specifically be there in the new creation? The Bible doesn't say. It just doesn't say. Now immediately when you die, when you go to heaven as it is now, apart from your body, with your soul only, in that time between your death and the resurrection on the last day, I'm pretty sure your pet will not be there, but in that day after the resurrection, when, when God has recreated the world, as he's talking about in this passage, when he makes all things new, it says that there will be animals. Will it be specifically fluffy? I don't know. I don't know, but I, I, I say this as a side note because that's one of those questions that leads us down the wrong rabbit trail of saying, what exactly will be in the movie theater? When the point of being there is the movie. What, what exactly will be in that new creation when the point of being there is the God of the new creation who's going to dwell with us as we're going to behold his glory in all its perfection. But here's what it says in verse 19. It says that this creation, we've got down the idea of what the creation is, but it says it waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Let's look at that last part of that verse the revealing of the sons of God, what what is it waiting for? Well, what it's waiting for is that day when all the redeemed of Christ are going to be in their resurrection bodies and glorified and living in the presence of God forever and ever blessed, enjoying him in both soul and body forever and ever. The creation is waiting for that. It says in John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, You're already God's children if your faith is in Jesus, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. That is something to look forward to. It's something to look forward to, and it's something that the Bible personifies the world itself as looking forward to. That day when those who are in Christ are publicly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment, and perfectly enjoyed God forever and ever. We, according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. We're already, if you're in Christ, you've already been recreated on the inside. You're already part of the new creation that Jesus is bringing in for all eternity. But you say, but I still, have, I still have my decaying flesh. I still have the desires of the flesh. I still have to cut off the old self, that, that dead body of, of sin every morning that wants to drag me down and to tempt me. Yes, we do. So, so are you a new creation or are you still here? Well, yes, both. It's the, the already and the not yet. You are already a new creation in Christ, but what you will be has not yet appeared. But it says here the creation itself is eagerly longing for that day when it will be revealed. What does that mean? Does that mean that the dirt that you're walking on has a sentient mind and it's just looking at you saying, is this going to be one of the sons of God? No. The dirt does not have a thinking mind. This is what's called personification. It's a literary device. It's showing us here that this is what the world was created for. It was created for the glory of God to be demonstrated in the image bearers of God. That's what it's here for. It's not happening in any kind of perfected way at all right now. And so when something that was made for a purpose isn't being used for that purpose, it's like it's longing to be used for that purpose. And so the creation itself is eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Just like Jesus said in Luke 19, I tell you, if these were silent. That's the crowds crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. He says, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. He's saying the world itself was made for the glory of God, and it will be turned to the glory of God one way or another. And we're going to be there. It's eagerly longing for the revealing. Now, we have uh, have some friends who, uh, who recently had their basement redone for a a home renovation TV show. Don't ask me which TV show, because they're not allowed to tell us yet. After it airs, then they can tell us which TV show it was, so we don't know. Uh, But they did tell us that when the the production wrapped up on that that TV shoot, uh, that there was a little bit of kind of like last-minute stuff that had to be done just to make sure it showed up right on the, the, the TV screens. And so one of the things that they had to do was to install a toilet before the plumbing had been installed and to say okay we're going to come back later and get the plumbing done here but we've just got to get this camera shot right now that works out fine if everybody understands what's going on there but they have some small children who didn't quite process the message and so what you end up there is this beautiful beautiful place where there's something over in the corner where it's not quite reflecting the perfect design of the tv home interior designers Right? And so you have this thing where it's a mixture of, Wow, that's beautiful and wow, that's messed up right there. <laughs> that's the world we're in. Where you can look around, and you can say, Wow, that is beautiful, that's declaring the glory of God and over here, wow, that is messed up. How can anybody who knows what he's doing have made a world that has that hurricane blow through? Or has that disease that begins to spread? Or has this or has that? How can that be? Well, the, uh, the reality is God is going to take everything and he's going to turn it to the reflection of his glory. He will make it right. There's so much in creation that just constantly is proclaiming the glory of God. There's sunsets 24 hours a day somewhere in the world. Sun rises 24 hours a day somewhere in the world. And not just on this world, but on all those other planets that are beautiful that nobody but God sees right now. So much that's proclaiming his glory, but also so much that's just crying out, this needs to be fixed. Why did that happen? Verse 20. Here's what it says. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It's saying, here's the fall. Remember I told you those, those four terms? If you understand these, you can have a Christian worldview. Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. God created everything perfectly, perfectly good for His good purposes. But then came the fall. Then came Genesis three. Then came the time when the image bearers, who were supposed to be in charge of spreading the knowledge of the glory of God to the ends of the world, filling the earth, subduing it uh, for for God's glory, they turned the opposite direction, sinned against God, and these curses came. This is the fall. It's not just that man was cursed. It's not even just that Satan was cursed, which he was as he tempted man to sin. It's also the world itself that God had created, that God put mankind into, was cursed. Here's what it says in Genesis 3, verse 17. And to Adam God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Do you hear that? He said, cursed is the ground because of you. When we wonder why are there such disastrous, terrible things in the world, that's the answer. Cursed is the ground because of our sin. He says, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. That's the state that the world is in. It says here in verse 20, it was subjected to futility, not willingly. The world around us didn't just say, well, let's be a messed up creation now. No, it was because of him who subjected it. That's saying that God gave the curse upon the ground. That's where disaster and difficulty and pain and suffering and heartache come from. The curse that was brought in by sin by sin. One thing to know here is that when we look at the world around us, sometimes it's easier and sometimes it's harder to discern the difference between God's created good design and the fallen messed up part of it. Sometimes it's it's just crystal clear, it's plain, but then there's other times when you're tempted to think, well, this is just how the world works and so because this is how the world works, this must be what's right to do. Th- this is just how people get ahead in business. It's just how it works, and therefore that must be what's right to do. This is-, this is just how I can get an advantage for my family. And so since it works, it must be right to do. And yet there's so much that's fallen in this world. We see this, I mean, very clearly in humanity, right? Right? where so often there is a confusion between what's the good design of God and what's the fallen state of man. Right now we're in a world that the culture and all kinds of products of the culture are just screaming at us, whatever you feel is how you are in yourself from your birth, embrace it, express it. Right? Well, that's a confusion between the creation and the fall. That's a confusion between God's good design and the sin that comes out in our human nature but it's not just in the desires of our flesh it's also in the world around us and all kinds of messed up things so don't look at the world and say well this is how it works i'm just going to i'm just going to be the guy who gets things done the way that they work that's what's going to honor god no that's not the right way to decide what's right and what's wrong you may say to yourself well what's the list where, where do I get the list of, of how to determine that? Well, it's called the Bible. The Bible is much more than a list of what's right and wrong. But it does contain that. It contains the law. And you also just need to grow as a Christian. In, in Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about solid food not being for the immature but for the mature. And it defines the mature as those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good from evil. You know what that means? It's not always obvious to us as we live in this world where's the distinction between God's good creation design and the fallen messed up stuff that we need to avoid. It's not always obvious. It takes constant practice. It takes growing in Christ. It takes being with your church family to help guide you. It takes prayer. It takes being in the word. We have to, by constant practice, learn to distinguish what seems to most people to be obvious. What's good and what's evil? Well, it's not always so obvious because we're living in a cursed world, a cursed world. And another thing to know about this is don't love the world and the things in the world. The world and all the things in the world, they are passing away along with its desires. The desires of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Don't love the world. I'm just quoting 1 John to you right there. But as we say, okay, the world is good, and it, but, but it's messed up. That's why you ought not to love the world. It's messed up. Love God who is not messed up. Right? And another thing, just knowing that, that the creation has fallen into this, this corruption, don't be surprised when the world brings hardship. Don't be surprised when the world brings suffering. We're still here. We're still in these mortal bodies We're still in this fallen world. It should not take us by surprise when there's suffering. But always knowing as Christians that we have our hope not in the things of this world, but in the glory that is still to be revealed. Then we get to verse 21 and we see the creation's future freedom. Look at verse 21. I'm looking to see who's not looking. Everybody look (laughs) at verse 21. There we go. That the creation, so it says, he subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. God, when He sent the curse and cursed the ground, it says He was subjecting it to futility but not forever, in hope that there would be a day that would come when He would set it free from the bondage to corruption. When the creation itself, that God created good, was going to obtain the freedom. Freedom from that slavery to corruption. Freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, the creation is waiting for that day when Jesus is going to come back, when Jesus is going to raise the dead, when Jesus is going to take the believers who are still living in that time and transform them and change them in the twinkling of an eye and give them their resurrection bodies. When, when God is going to, on the day of judgment, declare to believers in Christ well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. The creation is looking forward to that, and the creation on that day is going to be made new. It's going to be set free from its bondage to decay. This is where we get to the last two terms, is what I I told you is the Christian worldview. We had creation, fall, then we have redemption. Redemption is what Jesus has bought by his blood. It's most obvious that Jesus, in his blood, paid for the sin of God's elect from all eternity. The sin of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. The sins of all of these people, this massive number of people that can't be counted as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. That Jesus laid down his life to redeem us from our sins. You need to trust in Jesus. And Jesus invited every sinner to come to him. I to invite you to come to him. If you're still thinking, oh, the world's not that bad, I can, I can make a good go of it. I can, I, I can uh, knock out my whole bucket list and get everything that there is to, to have out of this life, and I'll be happy. Well, that, that, that's, that's the condemned mindset. Don't, don't be content that you're going to have a good last meal on death row. Look to Jesus who died in the place of sinners and accept his death as the payment for your sins. Believe in him. Receive the redemption that Jesus bought on the cross and be forgiven and live. Have eternal life. He gives it freely. The beautiful thing, too, one of the beautiful things about what Jesus did on the cross is that he didn't just accomplish the salvation of sinners on the cross. He also accomplished what it says in Ephesians 1.10, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in himself, things in heaven and things on earth. You hear that? Or Colossians 1.20. Through him, that's through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know what? When you get to Revelation 21 and you see there's a new heaven, and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven is adorned as a bride prepared for her husband. Do you know how those things are possible? It's because of the blood of Jesus. It's because in Jesus being crushed that he came to undo the curses of sin. Back in Genesis chapter 3, when when there's that curse against Satan, part of the curse is a promise for us. Because he says to Satan that there's going to come one day a seed of the woman, a child of the woman, who is going to crush Satan's head, even as his own heel is crushed. It's right in the middle of the curses, and it gives us an indication right there, what's going to happen with Jesus is going to bring about the undoing of the curses. You know, as an individual, the thing that, that we, we concentrate on, the thing that we most makes us our, our heart sing, and, and reasonably so, is the fact that Jesus' death was for me. He died in my place to pay for my sins. Oh, I mean, glory in the cross of Christ because of that. And he also died to undo the curse on the ground. Can you believe that? It's amazing. Do believe that because the Bible says it. What Jesus is bringing about is a new creation. It says it all the way back in the Old Testament, places like Isaiah 65 that Rick read to us this morning. Places like Reve- in the New Testament, like Revelation 21, this, this new creation is coming. It makes us have this question, is that, is that a whole new world Sometimes the Bible makes it sound that way. Because like Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world. And then he describes that. Or in Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So in some ways, some passages of the Bible sound like, okay, this whole world here is going to be completely thrown in the garbage and replaced. But then there's other passages like this. Acts 3.20, where where it says that Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for the restoring of all things. Hear that? That doesn't sound like the throwing out and replacing. It sounds like restoration, like you take your your old rusty car to the shop. It comes out new. Or in this passage, Romans 8. This is where we are. This is is probably the clearest passage in the Bible about it. This is not about the creation itself being thrown away and abandoned. It's about the creation longing for that time when it's going to be set free from its bondage to decay. So I think what's going on here, and the Bible doesn't give us like a total timeline exactly all the mechanics and all that kind of stuff, but I think what's going on here is that God is going to take this world and he's going to purge it of everything that's wrong with it As by fire, it says in 1 Peter. He's going to purge everything that's wrong with it. He's going to bring together heaven and earth. My thought is, I think when it says a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, I think all those three places are the same place all together. If we get there and I'm wrong and they're spread out a little bit, I'll just be like, this is awesome. all right." But I think that's what it's talking about is all heaven and earth coming together in this recreated place. In Second in Peter, he talks about Second Peter three, he talks about how, before the flood, that, that uh, the, the, everything was continuing as it was, and then the world was deluged with water and perished, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. I, I think it's the same kind of thing. That the Earth was drastically changed at the flood. It wasn't just that some people die. it was drastically changed, according to this verse. And it's going to be drastically changed again, not by water, but by a purging with fire. And it's going to be remade. And we're going to live in our resurrection bodies in a physical place. That's going to be this world made new and made perfect to the glory of God through the revealing of the sons of God forever and ever. Now, let me just put it like Isaiah 35 puts it. It says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Or like he says in Isaiah 11, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And it will be our resting place too. As we think about this, as we think about the creation being set free from its bondage to decay, whenever you look out and you see something beautiful in the world, I think we already know as Christians, we we ought to praise God. It's calling us to praise, to just be joyful and enjoy the God who made these beautiful things. But a thing that we can also do is we can think how much more beautiful is that going to be when when God has made all things new? Uh, I can't even imagine. Whenever we see something beautiful, it's not going to be tainted by all the messed up stuff that's around it right now. It's just going to be pure beauty. And purely to the glory of God, with no distraction, with no temptation to worship the creation instead of the creator. All pointing us purely to God himself. Whenever we see what's true in the world, we need to say, this is going to be made Beautiful in this way, where there's no mixture of error, no mixture of falsehood, no idea whatsoever that we could get what is untrue in the new creation. Whenever we see what is good in the world, we can say that's going to be even better in the world as it's remade with the glory of the revealing of the sons of God. The goodness and the truth and the beauty, they're going to be pure. They're going to be only for the glory of God and for us to enjoy. Another thing that we should do with this is is we should treat the creation as a stewardship from God. We should treat the world that we're living in in the way that it's said to treat it back in Genesis chapter 2. We should care for it. We should treat it as something that God has given us to use for his glory. Now, Sometimes, when Christians talk about stewarding the creation, they get nervous about, is this guy trying to promote this party's platform? Is this guy trying to say we shouldn't drill for oil in Anwar or something like that? That's not what I'm getting at. What what I'm getting at is not that that idea that's out there that that the world would be better off if humans were purged from it. What, What we've got here is that the world itself, it's not waiting for a day when humans are gone. It's waiting for a day when the sons of God are revealed in the glory of the Son of God. Remember, God put humanity into the world in a garden. And their charge was not take your hands off the garden and let the woods take it over again. The charge was fill the earth and subdue it. Go garden the whole earth, which is neither hands off nor destroying it, but taking care of it to the glory of God. And that's kind of the position that God has, has given us in the Scriptures. As we look at the created world, we need to say this is a gift from God. It's a stewardship from God for us to use and to use for his glory. Now, when we, when we see all these things, though, we need to remember that the, the creation is still waiting. The creation is not perfected. Remember that. It will be perfected. Look at verse 22. We have this groaning. It says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Groaning in the pains of childbirth. The creation is in this kind of like suffering, groaning state, but waiting for something better. What does groaning in the cha- pains of childbirth mean? Well, I'll just say, all of you ladies who have been through this, I know exactly how it feels. I know exact. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, but I do know how Jesus described, how Jesus used that imagery. He said in John 16, verse 21, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. And the Bible says the creation itself is in a situation of groaning like that. Again, not that it has a mind, not that it's processing these things with thinking like we do, but that it's subjected to this state of suffering and difficulty and pain and curse right now, but knowing that something better is coming, that there is a freedom that's coming. When a woman finally holds her baby, she doesn't say, boy this wasn't worth it. (laughs) Absolutely not. And on the day when Christ comes, we will say, it was all worth it. It was all worth it, for no one will take your joy from you. Nobody. All this, it was made as a place to display God's glory to God's image bearers and through God's image bearers, and that's what's going to happen. And as the creation itself as this kind of longing and groaning that it's talking about, we ought to have that same kind of groaning and longing to see Jesus. That's where we'll go next week, starting with verse 23, not only the creation, but we ourselves. So I'll have to keep myself from preaching next week's sermon right now. But we should have that. We should say that this perfected presence of God that's going to permeate the world with joy forever and ever is a place... hope for us where we should say let's set our hearts not on the things of this world where moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal where our bodies get eaten by disease but instead let's store up for ourselves treasure in heaven with our hearts on the new heaven and the new earth where there is neither suffering nor crying nor pain nor mourning all of those things are put away let's put our hope in Jesus who will bring us a joy they can never be taken from us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made the world, and we thank you that you made it good, and we thank you that you put us in it for your purposes as your image bearers to reflect your glory. But God, we also, uh, we, we feel the pain of the curse right now. We we feel suffering and difficulty, and we, we see disasters, and uh, Lord, there is just horrible things in this world that that if we were to simply tell people that uh, that God made this world and then they look at these things, they might wonder about your goodness. But we also know that it's because of sin and we know that you'll make all things right. God, I pray for those who are apart from Christ right now. I pray that you would grant them this hope and this eternal joy of turning to Jesus who came into this world, suffered alongside us, suffered in our place for our sins and rose from the dead, defeated death, and rose in his resurrected new creation body. Lord God, turn people to Jesus in faith, save them. And for us who are in Christ, I pray that you'd set our hope on that same thing, on, on the death and resurrection of Jesus, the one who's uh, uniting all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth. Um, God, we thank you that you are going to set this creation free from its bondage to decay. God, I, I, I pray that you'd set our hearts not so much on the world that we'll live in, but on you, the God that we will live with forever and ever to treasure you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our last hymn in response to God's word.
1: It'll be number 147, How Great Thou Art, uh, verses 1 and (laughs) 4.
0: invite everybody to come over to the chapel building, which if you're new here, it's right there. Um, we are going to have our Sunday social today, and we're also going to use this as an opportunity to celebrate the church's 172nd anniversary. Uh, say a couple things about the church's history there as well, but it's just a great opportunity for fellowship in Christ together, um, and I'd love to talk to you about any way that the Lord is, is dealing with you uh, in your soul, but let's pray as we go. Father, thank you for the new creation that is evident in front of us right now uh, in those who are your saints, who have been brought from death to life, to faith in Jesus, declared righteous not because of our works, but because of Jesus' righteousness. Lord, it's just a beautiful thing to behold the new creation already come in that miraculous work of recreating a soul in, uh, in Christ. And God, I pray... Uh, that you would turn our hearts toward this hope of heaven as we live this week. God, help us not to get confused between the creation and the fall. Help us to discern what is good and what is evil. But I pray that you'd build us up in joy as we consider that everlasting joy that we have in front of us in a 100% good place where we will live forever in your presence. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.